Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. My co-host is Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I noticed you're not wearing your glasses today. Is there any particular reason for that? Uh, not not any exciting reason. No, I, my glasses were rubbing quite badly on my ears and my nose, so I needed to give them a little break. <laughs> That's one struggle that us glassless people probably take for granted. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. glad your face is having a good break. Yeah, and the fogging, the fogging at this time of year. It's the fall as we're recording this. So, you know, you forget about that all summer long until you go inside. And especially now with face masks, you just instantly fog up in glasses, which is a fun challenge. Well, and and not just that, Heather, you work from home, right? Mm -hmm. So you missed out on a great opportunity this morning. I don't know what it was like for you, Kim. Oh, you're at home too. So I... My commute's usually about half hour to 45 minutes. It was an hour and a half this morning <laughs> because we had a lovely fall rain last mm-hmm. night mm-hmm. that coated the entire world up here with ice. Yeah, the cars, the sidewalks, the roads. Yeah, I walked like a penguin all the way to my kids' school <laughs> and back with them today. So I did get a small taste of it, but didn't have to drive in it, thank goodness. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. And that's the choice. We ch- I chose to live here. Right. So I, yeah. That's what I chose. I chose to sometimes drive in the freezing rain. Okay. Uh, I have about that. Sorry. Yes. Uh, we're joined today, as always, by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. Hi, Evan. Great. Uh, I'm just really loving the option to be hybrid as as a professional now so we don't have to battle those conditions on the road we can just elect to stay at home and work from home so there's some upside to the pandemic getting comfortable on these virtual uh, meetings and and having the option to to toss the car keys and maybe crawl back into bed for another 15 minutes (laughs) yeah that's not too bad either but thanks for having me. Uh, excited to hear from our, our guest today. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be very interesting. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you introduce her. All right. Well, I'm very pleased to introduce and welcome today's guest, Paulette DeKelver. Hi, Paulette. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Um, Paulette, I know you fairly well. We worked together for a few years um, back when I was just starting my career. Um, I know that you've been a lawyer for almost 20 years, which I can't believe looking at your youthful (laughs) face on the video, which listeners aren't going to get to see, but they're just going to have to take my word for. Um, And I know that you've been involved in all sorts of different areas of law, different kinds of dispute resolution. Um, but I know that you call yourself a litigator. Um, when we worked together, you did a lot of, I think, insurance work, medical malpractice, which is super fascinating. Um, but I also know that you're the mother of two, a dedicated family woman, that you love the outdoors and hiking and camping and, and all sorts of stuff. So you're a true, uh, a truly well-rounded person. And I'm so excited to chat with you today about your journey in law and life. Welcome. 
Oh, you know, it's so, so exciting to be here with you. And um, one of my favorite things is to be in conversation and to just chat about different issues um, and different, different aspects of law, obviously. Um, but one of my favorite things to do is to take a legal topic and kind of spin it on its heels a bit and see different ways that we can look at it. So I'm really excited to be catching up with you, Heather. It's been a while since we worked together. Yeah, 20 years. My gosh, I can't believe it's been that long but I've been in law um, and Evan it's it's really great to meet you and I'm curious to hear your perspective on things and uh, Kim I always welcome the perspective of somebody outside of law sorry fellow lawyers um, but I, I, we know what you mean right like it's yeah. good to hear from other people too we kind of get in our little silos and our ivory tower and forget that there's life outside of the legal profession so i think we know everything and we're always talking like yeah enough lawyers right? <laughs> exactly so and especially somebody like you know me that has been around for a while and like Heather said, I've done medical malpractice, I did some insurance, I've done employment, labor. Yeah, I can fancy myself pretty clever about a bunch of things, right? So let's just step back a bit and, you know, have a conversation. So I'm, I'm excited about it. It's so great to have you. Um, so maybe let's start from the beginning. Um, what how did you come to law? What, tell me a little bit about your journey to, to becoming a lawyer. You know, um, I really enjoy chatting with people about sort of how they got to here. And when I first got into law school and started the practice, I was actually pretty uncomfortable with that question. Um, I had the impression that everybody came to law kind of th through one channel. And there are certainly lots and lots of people that I know that do come from legal families um, where, you know, mom or dad or maybe both were lawyers um, or judges, um, or were involved in different areas of the law, uh, or certainly lots of families um, where they'd come from other professional backgrounds, mm. you know, maybe accounting or engineering or financial planning. Um, and my background is not like that at all. Um, I was pretty nervous to talk about that for a long time. Um, my family is very much a pioneering, laboring, trade union family. Um, you know, my folks left school in the eighth grade and the 10th grade. So they made their living with their hands. Mm. I was one of the first, I think I was the first in my family to actually go on to any kind of college degree let alone university. And then on top of that, to go into law school. Like I remember spending hours explaining to my aunt what a diploma was, then what college was and how that was different than university. And then she'd say, okay, so you're going to have a master's degree. No, I'm going to be a bachelor. But how could you be a bachelor? You're a woman. Like she just, <laughs> around that. so yeah, so it was quite a different path to, to get to here. Uh -huh. And, you know, as the years have gone by, I've actually really come to embrace that variety in my background mm -hmm. and I've had really great conversations with lots of people that have come from farming backgrounds or you know their family was in mining um, or you know a lot of my family is involved in uh, the lumber industry 
in BC. Lots and lots of logging in my background. My mom was a custodian for years, a public, you know, part of the public service. Um, and I, I think when we can pull back and look at people coming from different backgrounds and different voices, I think that that makes our law vastly more rich mm-hmm. in who is represented mm-hmm. and um, the different perspectives that then get heard. I've, I've recently had the chance to get to know some people that have um, in Indigenous background and, and especially Indigenous women that are now practicing law. And I think mm-hmm. that is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just brings... Uh, all those voices into the conversation, who's being represented, who's representing, um, and, and brings those perspectives in, doesn't it? Absolutely. I, yeah, go I, ahead. Love, I love your background because um, I'm not the first person with a degree in my family, but um, my dad dropped out of high school in grade eight or something like that. And my mom was doing a bachelor of education when she got pregnant and then she never stopped being pregnant by nine of 12 children. Um, and so, you know, my dad had to work real hard and without a degree, he ended up in sales cause he, he's just that way. Um, and so, you know, I didn't, uh, I not exactly the same as yours. Of course, everyone's different, but the same kind of idea where I, I was the first, I'm the first professional, in my family and with a professional degree and, and things like that. And it was uh, definitely a, a different perspective. Although I'm glad you got over feeling like, um, I don't know what the right way to put it is the way you were talking about how you were kind of like, didn't, didn't really want to talk about how, you know, your background. I'm glad you got over that because I think that's, it's just so important. Like what you, what, what you said about that, like, uh, my clients come from all different types of walks of life and my background helps me to relate to them in a unique way. Whereas if I was just uh, a silver spoon type of person might be more difficult to actually relate. So I agree backgrounds, different backgrounds help bring like a richness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think because in in the background that I I came from, um, cash was always an issue, right? And and Evan, I'm I'm guessing if, you know, by expressing, you know, that you were nine of 12 kids, I mean, um, cash was probably an issue in your family too on a regular basis. And, you know, we don't talk about issues like that. Um, You know, and I know my family came from a place, uh, there was a great deal of pride um, and, you know, didn't, and didn't necessarily want people to know what the struggles were. Um, But, you know, as I've gotten into this more and kind of overcome some of that embarrassment and hesitation that I had, I've seen so much strength, like, especially on, well, on both sides of my family, there's a real, uh, a lot of pioneers. And, and I literally mean like homesteading, clearing land, building log houses, trapping, um, shepherding sheep on the mountains. And, you know, Heather mentioned that I like to be in the outdoors. And that's something that I've kind of discovered later in life. And as I've spent more time doing that, I thought, gosh, why do I feel so at home in this environment? And started asking my family more of those questions and found, well, it's kind of almost biological or like there's a natural extension of some of the work that they did um, that helped to create a situation where I could go on 
to school. So my world has opened up with my colleagues, with my clients, with my own recreation and interests. So I'm I'm really excited to be able to get into that conversation and to hear from other people too. Oh. Yeah. You know what's funny? I, I have a great, great, I can't remember how many greats grandfather who is on the Supreme Court of the United States uh, right before the Civil War. And so, um, and then, you know, after that, I have lots of uh, families that were farmers and pioneers in that way as well, homesteading in, in uh, the United States and Canada. And so it's kind of, uh, I wonder if I feel at home the way that you did getting outdoors, being in the legal profession. I don't know about oh, that. But I, that history. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But there's also this primal, this just, um, you know, we come from evolutionary people like to talk about how we came from hunter gatherers. So that's like in our DNA to be out with the land. Um, so I'm not surprised. Hey, Heather, I know Heather likes hiking. <laughs> yeah. Kim, I, I mean, Kim's one of Kim's nicknames is mad dog. So she's, she's all over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because I do not come from a wealthy or professional family either. And I think I had, I mean, I think of it as sort of like, I felt like I had imposter syndrome for a long time and that like being a lawyer meant a certain thing or acting a certain way or I don't know, or maybe even that element of like gatekeeping knowledge and all of that stuff. And as I... I don't know, come into my own as an adult, as a professional. I mean, this is the direction I'm, I'm drawn in is to open up the gates and share knowledge with people and be a open and inviting guide through law and, and all of, all of those kinds of things, which is kind of interesting because um, we all kind of seem to share that there's a bit of a theme here. So it's really fascinating that it's resident for, for all of us. I think lawyers have an image to put out for sure in, in their profession. You guys are representing a, a pretty important uh, body of work. And uh, my impression of lawyers is that they have a large amount of confidence. And, uh, you know, how do you how do you embody that confidence and still be down to earth? I'm totally curious to hear more from Paulette because the name of our podcast is Access to Justice. And I imagine that's been a big, big, uh, you know, focal point in your career, trying to get people information and help them out. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And um I love this duality or this tension between um, having a really important job to do. Like when you're acting as somebody's lawyer or legal advisor or advocate or representative, um, the stakes are high, right? You're dealing with people's families, the custody, support, the, you know, the issues that the family lawyers deal with, um, you know, whether you're dealing with somebody's home or their pension or retirement, or in my case, um, I do a lot of employment law. So you're dealing with people's jobs and paychecks. Like these are high, high stakes issues. And I'm, I'm sure as well, Kim, you deal with that in, in the financial world. Um, so how do you deal with all of that? And yet still be accessible 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, for some lawyers, that's um, that's not part of their makeup. It's not part of their concern. And that's great. There's um, a, a body of representation that that works for really well. Mm-hmm. It's never really worked for me. Mm-hmm. I've always really felt a need to be really grounded in terms of who I talk to, how I talk to them, and how I put myself out in the world. And I don't know, the feedback that I've received over the years is that that tends to work really well. I've had, I've been really lucky with the cross-section of people that I've been able to work with. Um, You know, mom, pop, Folks, um, I remember my only financial deal that I ever had to do was as a very young lawyer, an articling student, and it was a refinancing somebody's farm. And I remember meeting this guy and like muck on his boots and his overalls, and he, he had to come into downtown and he was so nervous, like he could hardly talk. And I remember just like, you know, pushing back, like putting the file aside and just being like, okay, so tell me about what matters to you. Mm -hmm. And just taking like a half an hour to just kind of break that ice. And then the actual legal work took like 10 minutes. But it's, for me, it's about being able to meet people where they're at. Um, over the years doing litigation work, and we can talk about that more if you're interested. Um, I've, I've done legal litigation files that span the spectrum, mm-hmm. like from the most mundane minor to multi-million dollar birth injury, profound, profound cases. Um, but throughout it all, for me, it has really been about even getting deeper and more grounded into the conversations that I am the most comfortable having. And that's ultimately what's taken me in this direction of, of mediation and conflict resolution. Hopefully that answers your question. So, so what is this journey from litigation to alternative dispute resolution? How, how does somebody go from this hardcore area of practice to this sort of warm, soft, friendly version? <laughs> I don't know whether as a litigator, was I, uh, was I uh, cold-hearted or was I kind of warm and soft? I don't know. You got to tell me. I didn't know myself back then. <laughs> um, well, I know that you are very, very smart, hardworking, and super capable, um, but I'm also maybe glad that I was never on the other side of a file with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think you are you and you always have been. So I don't think you would have, I think you were probably a tough cookie and, and you do your job extremely well, but I think you always meet people at their human level so I don't know if that answers your question all that well you know um I I appreciate that the the way you phrase that and it reminds me of um talking to my uh, my youngest son when he was in kindergarten and trying to explain to him what I did for work um which is hard right like how do you explain to a five-year-old what a litigator is and so I was trying to explain the courts and you know back and forth and I could see like it just you know like water running off the duck's back it wasn't sinking in and I said well here it is court is really about two people having a fight but instead of having swords they use their words 
Mm-hmm. And that's really what litigation is, right? Mm-hmm. Like fundamentally, it's an adversarial process. It's one lawyer for one side or one party takes a position, tries to win, and the other side takes a different position and they try to win. So he ultimately explained to his uh, kindergarten teacher that uh, his mummy was a gladiator, (laughs) which kind of made me laugh. And then I went to my husband and I was like, is like, is that true? And my husband said, well, yeah, kind of it is because that's the nature of the process, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you're in litigation, you're in it to win it. That's Mm -hmm. the point. Um, So some matters call out for that. Mm -hmm. They absolutely require Mm -hmm. that kind of intensity, like the litigation, the the medical malpractice stuff. Um, Sometimes people get hurt when, you know, a baby gets hurt in the birth process. It's a big deal. There's compromise for life. There's long-term lifespans. There's high expenses. Um, And sometimes you need to take that to trial. And there are big, big dollars on the line. And I'm really grateful that I had the chance to do that work um, with what I think is the best team in Canada. Um, And I'm very happy to refer medical malpractice work to to the team at We're Bowen. And I will always be grateful for that. Um, what I found was happening, there was a whole bunch of things happening. Um, but one of them is I was talking to more and more people that had legal challenges that litigation was not the answer for, Mm. right? Right. Because that head to head, when scorched earth policy Mm -hmm. doesn't work in a lot of cases, for a lot of people, right? And like you guys have talked to lots and lots of lawyers. Um, anytime, first of all, litigation is long, it's yeah. expensive. And anytime yeah. you've got a relationship involved, litigation effectively destroys relationship. Right. So there's a whole group of people out there that have legal problems that need solutions where litigation is a really blunt instrument. Right. And so that's, I started to get interested in that aspect of trying to bring different answers to people. I feel like we should, there should be like a flow chart. So you want to, you're thinking about suing somebody. Um, do you want to take a really long time, spend a lot of money and totally destroy your relationship with the other person? If you said yes to all three of those, not just one, but all three litigation is for you. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, like, I want to be clear, like, I I don't want to be slagging the courts or, you know, that's not why I made the change at all. And there are some matters that I say, like litigation is the answer. If you've got a a new or novel question of law, you need a judge to make a decision about what the outcome should be. Um, If you've got like, you know, multiple parties and millions and millions of dollars on the line, then maybe you be in litigation for five or six or seven years and you pay your lawyer millions of dollars. Okay. But lots of people I know don't fit those categories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and we, I'm sure we've said this on here before, but court definitely has its place. It's very important because, um, even in situations that are much uh, lower stake financially than that, or situations involving children where one of the parties just refuses to engage at all. Um, 
and you need the situation stabilized, like that is the last resort, but it's, it will solve the problem. It might not be the best, but like we need court courts have their place. But yeah, I think, um, I couldn't agree with you more that, man, most of the time, like I definitely, I have files where I, um, I really, I keep trying to tell everybody this, we need to go do something else. We should not be heading towards a trial. You can't afford to do it. You're going to end up without me on your own trying to do it. Like let's, let's do arbitration and either rarely is it my client. I'm usually can convince them. Usually it's either the other party or the other lawyer. That's like, no, we, we don't want to do that. We just want to do court. That's frustrating. Well, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you, you can't convince some people uh, to take that course of action. And if that's the case, then I like to know that early and upfront. And all right, let's just litigate. And yeah, after 20 years, I can pound through the steps. I know the process. Let's just make it happen and force it. Uh, and then I got to just tell my client that that's kind of the way that that's going to be. Um, less and less, I find myself in court. Um I've got a couple of civil litigation files, but not very many anymore. Uh, I do a lot of arbitration in the labor context, um, acting primarily for unions under collective agreements. And, and that I quite enjoy. Um, it goes much more quickly. Like you go from grievances filed to you're at arbitration, usually within about 24 to 36 months which my unions will still say, are you kidding me? That's three years. That's like forever. And I have to explain, no, no, not actually. Right. Um, so there's like, I still do litigation work from time to time. Um, but it is definitely, it has definitely changed from earlier on in my practice where it was all I did. Um, because I've had more and more conversations with people where their matter just didn't fit. Litigation just was not the answer for them. Right. So is it people pushing that shift or is it the lawyer sort of mm -hmm. like, are, is the lawyer kind of saying there's another way or are people saying, I don't want to fight. Is there another way? What would you say is more common? In my experience, it's been the people. Most of the lawyers that I know um, have been, it's kind of baked into the business model, right? Like, Working through those steps um, can make, you can make a lot of money doing it. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and for a long time, it was kind of the way. So I, again, I want to be really careful here. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus or, or be critical. It was what people knew and it's what they were doing. I increasingly heard from people, are you kidding me? Like, come on, there's got to be something different here. So that's really kind of what got me interested is, and as a lawyer in litigation under the rules of court, um, before you set something for trial, at least in the civil context, you have to have participated in some form of an alternative dispute uh, process. That rule has been under the rules of court for a long, long time, mm -hmm. it was suspended, and then it's recently recently in my world, uh -huh. um, over 20 years recent, um, been reenacted so that you need to do that um, process again, uh, the dispute resolution process. Um, but really, I heard it coming from people that I was chatting with that would just say, like, your, your process sounds insane. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, 
I think you said you're working primarily sort of in, in the employment area, like as far as areas of law. So what are you offering folks that come in as alternatives to litigation if you think it's appropriate for them? Mm. So really there's two, well, there's kind of three areas that I'm involved in mostly uh, that are not litigation. Uh, so the number one thing is mediation. I do some work still where I'm acting as advocate for a party in mediation, but more and more I'm getting hired by other lawyers that want somebody to act as mediator for them. And that can look like a bunch of different things. And, and I can walk through that process in a bit more detail, um, if you like. The other two things that I do quite a bit is um, I'm involved with a group that's doing a lot of collaborative law. And, you know, Heather, you're in family, so you'll be very familiar. And I, I actually think that that's primarily how you practice is collaborative family law. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, but that process of collaborative law hasn't really taken off in the civil context. So there's a group that have been working primarily out of Calgary for about 18 months getting this going. And I've only joined them in the last three or four months or so to um, develop a civil collaborative process. And I'm really, really excited about that. Um, and so what that would mean is that you're really hired exclusively as settlement counsel. Mm -hmm. So you get brought on the file, to act as advocate for one of the parties, the other side is still represented by a lawyer, and they're also exclusively retained to try to settle the file. And there's quite a, a formal process, including some document production and some discovery. And then you try and you sit down and you meet all four of you in a room, the two lawyers and the two clients, and have repeated rounds of settlement discussions. And if the file does not settle and resolve, then new lawyers are hired to litigate it. Mm -hmm. so, and, and I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here with yourself, Heather. Um, that process is new to us in civil litigation. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And, and really the other offer offering that I have, um, it's kind of quasi-legal, but it's almost more like coaching or mentoring or training people and how to stay in conflict long enough to actually resolve the fight. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when conflict comes up, mm -hmm. it triggers a lot of emotions, a lot of big feelings, and a lot of people will run away. It's right. a natural instinct, right, to avoid the fight. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of teaching. I'm an instructor at NEED. I'm a, a coach, a mentor on bringing people the skills to stay in that conversation long enough to help resolve that fight. A conflict avoided is a conflict repeated. Now, I, I recall us having someone else on talking about the different unhealthy responses to conflict. Okay, I, was it Kim McBain Butts? Might have been. Yeah, that, it might have been. Yeah. There were, anyways, they were talking, Paulette, about basically, you know, the that one unhealthy response is to just be like, no, I'm out. I don't care. They can take, I'll just pay it. Like, I'm out. And then, you know, of course, afterwards down the road, they're left, they're stuck with that decision. 
and uh, that you know wasn't necessarily the best decision to make. They just did it because of you know the wrong reasons, I guess. And so what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that you coach people to help them kind of get past that point so that they can get a, a more fair resolution. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I got to be careful, right? Like I'm not a therapist and there's all kinds of issues that can come up for folks. Um, and I'm regularly referring people out to get the support that they need, you know, when those things happen. But, you know, a lot of us can really use just some basic skills in recognizing when we're triggered. What does that feel like in your body? You know, we all know it. If you take a minute and kind of sit with it, your maybe your hands get sweaty, or you feel like you've got that tightness in your chest, or you keep swallowing, and you just kind of can't can't kind of get your your feet back under you, or you get flushed, uh-huh. right? You get hot. Uh-huh. Maybe you cross your arms, you clench teeth, right? And you just, oh, I'm so mad. Well, you know, when you're in that place, really tough to make good decisions right so how to recognize that yeah the rush of blood to the head rarely rarely helps with decision making how to sit with that how you know i I tell people simple things like you can always ask for a break to go to the bathroom right walk Uh away for 30 Uh seconds how some of the breathing techniques how to identify your self-talk what stories are you telling yourself remind yourself why you're in this and then you can how to feel the energy start to discharge Mm. okay and then come back now let's keep talking about it Mm. so it's kind of it's a soft skill I I, most lawyers historically would be like are you kidding me you're talking about breathing like what (laughs) what place does that have in a law practice Look, I, I don't know, Paulette. I think it like any negotiation I've been in, I'm always like beforehand, I'm telling my clients, look, there's probably going to be a point where you're feeling really upset and we'll stop so you can take a break. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because, you know, that's it, it never helps anything. Like that doesn't help resolve anything. And inevitably, I, when yeah. people are in conflict, and especially when like in the family law context, they know exactly how to push each other's buttons. And so they'll deliberately yes. say things just to dig in the knife. Like they've been wanting to say this forever. Now that now is the chance while well, all, all the lawyers are watching. Yeah. Yep. And, and then she said this, and then, you know, she's getting red and like, that's not what I said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Right, right. Well, and even as the dispassionate professional of the rooms, uh, professionals in the room, you can put up your hand and, you know, no one will see you. How many times have you gotten escalated or triggered or upset in a meeting, right? Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you'll have to watch the video to find out how many of us put up our hands. But I mean, we're humans in those rooms too, right? And I think sometimes um, that's not recognized that the role that we play in the conflict. Um, And sometimes it is, it's sometimes it's, I don't want to say innocent, but it's not, um, People don't have enough self-awareness to realize maybe sometimes that they are escalating a conflict um, because of their own emotional reaction. And that's that's a human reaction as well, right? We're all used to mirroring other people's um, emotional states and, and all of those kinds of things. That's us as 
cave dwellers, right? Somewhere deep in our reptilian brain. But um, yeah, it's fascinating that lawyers are starting to take on those conversations. And I, I think it's great, but... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I like what you said, Paulette, about like, you've got to tread lightly because you know, it's a soft skill that we're, we're not psychologists, but at the same time, those, those kind of things can really help practically. It, like mm -hmm. there's something to apply that'll help through uh, the conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I kind of, you know, was making a joke about, you know, where is there a place for breathing in, in the law practice? But I mean, if you've taken your clients through questioning on affidavit, or you've had to go through any kind of a court process, anytime when they've had to tell their story or their version of events, um, I always advise my clients at questioning. When the question is asked, take a breath in, take a exhale. Then answer, because it actually gives you a chance to think about what that question is, right? To kind of stay level and give your best version of the events. So I guess it's actually kind of a logical extension of that. It's helping your client to do the best they can in right. presenting that case. But the area that I've shifted into in dealing with mediation and more conflict resolution is it's you bring the parties together to actually get face to face to try to resolve it. And Evan, um, you said something I think that really ties into that, which is negotiation. It's when you're in a mediation or when I'm acting as a mediator, most of the time I'm really facilitating a form of negotiation. And so it's not that dispassionate litigation process or, you know, human rights tribunal or arbitration where you're talking to a third party neutral that's going to make a decision. In my world these days, more and more people are face to face and it, it can get hot. And yeah. Frankly, that's I'm okay with that because when it gets hot, I know I'm getting close to the issue because people get hot, get emotional because something is important. Mm -hmm. And if I can be getting them to talk about what's important, then we're actually probably going to get this sorted out because that is one of the advantages of getting out of the litigation process is I'm not talking about just pure legal rights, right? Like it's not about rights and wrongs. It's not about entitlements under the statute or what the case law says. But when I'm in a, a mediation arena or a facilitated conversation or even the collaborative law process, I can be talking about what's important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that might be something like, you know, in an employment situation, um, they never ask, never say good morning. And, you know, maybe that sounds kind of silly when I say it in this context, but if you've been working with somebody for five years and they never acknowledge when you walk in the office, that might just, you know, be the thing that really pushes uh -huh. your buttons. Uh -huh. But, you know, maybe we end up talking about performance improvement plans and entitlements to salary and bonus. But maybe it really comes down to that human element of how we interact in the office every day. So, you know, to your question, Kim, about how I ended up shifting into that, more and more I found myself really wanting to talk to people about 
what's important to them. Sometimes that's litigation based, but more and more it's not. And especially in the last two years with COVID and, you know, like you mentioned about hybrid and whether you're working at home and there's myriad issues that I'm just fascinated to really hear from people about what's important to them. Mm. Well, it sounds like you're getting to the root of the problems. Like you really are digging in and maybe that gives people more closure down the road. So they aren't, you know, tightening their fists and hanging on to those for 30 years. Maybe they can get a, a true resolution. You know, in, in the work that I'm doing now, that's really key because like I said, it's often it's about relationship, right? So if you've got um, a supplier and um, a customer issue and something has fallen off the rails, something has been delayed or there's a breach of contract or whatever, sure, there's a whole bunch of legal rights there, but they want to keep working together. So at some point, somebody is going to have to say to the other one, look, you dropped the friggin' ball and you never said you're sorry and I can't get past that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Once we've got that on the table, what else is there? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, it's sort of, it's more building something up mm-hmm. in terms of interactions between people as opposed to pure legal remedies. Right. Yeah. Like we, we, we sometimes call that interest-based negotiation is, does a similar kind of thing where you're you wanting to find out okay like i know we're talking about you know in the employment context okay we're talking about salary but and sometimes maybe it is literally just about salary but usually not right there's something deeper like um are there financial issues at home or or some pressure somewhere else or is it about the prestige like there's usually going to be something underneath that that and once you uncover that then the hope is well okay maybe we can address the real underlying cause here instead of just okay we'll give you a raise that might not actually solve the problem absolutely um you know an employment is a great example for that uh because some sometimes it's about money for sure i mean there's you know we all need a a certain amount of cash to pay our bills but it is so often tied to something else like you said prestige for some people, um, it may be about a title. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe there's a cultural piece to that. Um, maybe it's about a flexible work arrangement. Maybe it's instead of working from, you know, nine to five, it's working from 7am to 3pm. And maybe for the employer, that is not an option. And, and that's what we really need to be talking about. Um, and that once you can start to really get into those issues, it is fascinating to me what can actually start to come up. But yeah, it is absolutely interest-based, Ethan. That's the the model that I'm totally working in. Hmm. Hmm. I had some thoughts floating around there too, that it's interesting that relationally, often what people are sort of seeking is... Um, some responsibility in the other person's column and their own column, taking some responsibility, some maybe apology or ownership for something that happened, but the adversarial system, (laughs) that's how we determine guilt and money and all of that stuff. So that's like at the end of the process, right? So in some ways, those two systems are sort of so at odds because, (laughs) um, 
yeah, like a recognition of a role in um, in a problem and that idea of responsibility are kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum in some ways. So it's an that's a really interesting tension too. Yeah, absolutely. And um you know, I mean, you can you can still apologize and, and not have it used against you, strictly speaking, to prove liability. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so the rules of evidence do permit that to happen, you know, in specific circumstances. But, you know, in the world that I'm operating in these days, I would ask questions like, what would an apology do for you? Uh-huh. Right? Like, what need does that fill? when somebody apologizes well i and then we start to get at the interest questions right like i feel validated i feel respected i feel secure in my job um i feel trusted Mm -hmm. right so um to to me like i was on this path even before covid started and since the whole working from home isolation and all of the pressures that everybody feels, I don't care who you are, everybody's life is so deeply impacted by these shifts. It's really reinforced for me the importance of people needing to speak to each other mm. and helping to create that safety because so many of these issues have become so polarizing mm. and with good reason. You know, there's deeply held values on many sides of these issues. And it's hard, right? When we're talking about issues like healthcare or, um, you know, um, vaccines, Heather, you and I have chatted about that. Um, It's hard. It is Uh hard when you've got a deeply held belief or value that's impacting your ability to work, your ability to provide for your kids, your kids to be able to access their programs that they need. And somebody is in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right? Has, Heather, has Heather had some issues with the vaccination? Like, <laughs> well, no, no, like Heather, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or throw you off the spot. I was. What kind of conversations have happened here? No, but I, it's like. It, it I'm very it, supportive of vaccinations. That's <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and And I am too. Um, and it's, it's trying to find the space to have uh-huh. those conversations. Uh-huh. Like, how do you uh-huh. get past, I'm so friggin' mad, yeah. to, but I still love you or respect you or need to work yeah. with you? Yeah. How do we find that path forward? Uh-huh. And that's the space that I'm just finding to be really, really powerful. Uh these days whether it's mediation or collaborative practice or you know coaching and mentoring and conflict resolution Uh litigation does not set people up to talk about things it sets them up to fight about things and i want to talk about things yeah yeah and anger is often um, masked for something else underneath there too, right? So like you were giving that example, right? But it's probably fear or be feeling threatened, right? That, yeah, your livelihood's going to go away, that um, you're, you're not going to have an identity at your job anymore if you don't have that. You might be worried about your retirement, like so many things, but it, but it comes out as anger and you're right. And then that brings up defensiveness and that sets us further apart um rather than trying to have a conversation in that space in between 
It is so exciting to me that you're bringing this forward and, and trying to use these and starting to use these tools in employment and in civil matters. Cause I think it's just, I mean, I, when I saw your, I think I saw your post on LinkedIn or Facebook or something and I just like squealed in delight. <laughs> <laughs> on your, on your uh, web page, there is um, one of the menus is called workplace mediation and restoration. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and what you do there? Because obviously we've been talking about kind of the, some of the techniques you use there, but what, what does that mean? When, when would somebody come to you for that service? Oh, oh well, thanks for that question. Um, so that can look like a whole bunch of different things. Usually I get involved at the point when somebody um, either in human resources or maybe there's been an HR consultant or uh, maybe there's just a supervisor that is at their wits end. They don't know what to do and they bring me in to try to bring people together to deepen that conversation. So the specific process often looks like I get retained and I meet with the parties separately. And my conversation usually starts with, tell me what's going on. Like it's not very high level complex questioning. But as they start to talk, I'm really listening for those interests. I'm watching for those triggers. And I want to start to identify what are those points that are the sort of the buried little nuggets. And I'm trying to bring those up. At the same time, I'm also working with the, the parties separately to help them to have some of the skills to get into that conversation. Like we talked about at the triggering and how to just be in it long enough to let that feeling come up and out and move through you and then carry on with the conversation. So it's individual one-on-one -on -one meetings. A lot of those are happening virtually right now. I can even do them by telephone. Mm -hmm. Once I've done some of that pre-work with the parties, then we've set the groundwork to bring them together. And that looks like um, a facilitated conversation, mediation, whatever you want to call it, where I will then say, okay, I've had the chance to speak with each of you separately. You've both agreed to be here voluntarily. Now we're going to have you talk to each other about what's on your mind. And I now try to help them carry the energy in a safe way that they can look the other person in the eye and actually say, you know, when you don't say good morning to me after the fifth, you know, year number five, I really just don't know where to go with that. And I feel hurt, disrespected, shut down, whatever it is. And then I've tried to set the other person up to hopefully be able to hear that. And then once we've gone through that process, we figured out what the interests are, then brainstorm some solutions. And usually at that point, I can hand it back over to somebody in HR or a supervisor to try to implement those solutions. And sometimes I then get brought back in to have some follow-up conversation and some dialogue. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I like, I'm sure that a lot of employers don't even know that's available to them. 
especially smaller businesses. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's important for them to know because as if small businesses don't have conflicts at the workplace, of course they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might not just, they just may not know that a resource such as yourself is available to help work through that. Well, and it's so um, valuable to them if they can have those conversations, ideally before things get entrenched, um, because people leave, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, cultures turn toxic relationships turn toxic and then people just don't know what to do and so they walk away and the costs to that are really high right it's actual loss of institutional knowledge it's trying to replace somebody um loss of uh, sick days people being on disability programs the downtime um in dealing with that kind of conflict the downtime and productivity yeah like if people can actually find their way into having those conversations. There are huge upsides, but let's be honest, it's hard. Nobody says, oh, you know what I want to do today? I want to sit down with that problem employee and tell them just why they're rubbing me the wrong way. Like nobody wakes up in the morning and says, that's what I want to do, right? Uh Um, But if they can, and ultimately if it avoids them having to fire somebody or pay a severance package or have to deal with a human rights complaint or a wrongful dismissal lawsuit. There are huge upsides for people to having those conversations. Yeah. Well, I, sometimes I wake up feeling that way and then I go and look in the mirror. We have that conversation and uh, we're good. I was going to say, this reminds me a lot of the interest-based negotiation course with Lisa, where they said people just want to be heard. And I think if, you know, you could probably pack a stadium, Paulette, where you bring in leaders of every company out there and they learn how to play defense. So, you know, like learn how to listen and don't be so shy to dig in and ask uncomfortable questions because a lot of leaders don't dig in and they never get the full answer and I feel like you would be a huge benefit to the entire world bringing in a lawyer who specializes in employment law and also has ADR skills to teach these leaders that when you ask a question and somebody gives you you know like a surface level answer you need you need to ask more because there's a reason that they're not speaking up you know, Kim, uh, well, first of all, I'm like my head can't fit in the, the picture frame for my anymore because of that compliment. Like, I thank you for that. One um, of I love talking about and uh, learning more about Brene Brown's skills on leadership mm-hmm. because it is just one of my favorite places to be. And it's exactly those issues that you're talking about. When leaders take the time to really set aside what's going on for themselves, if they can, and listen to their team, the information that they are going to get is so rich. And what it really requires is to do that dance with vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Right? Are you able to say, okay, I can take it. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that they are going to say, I'm confident enough in myself and my skills, and I am grounded, and I got enough sleep last night, and I got my workout in, and I've you know had more than a mint for lunch, and I can hear 
what is going to be said to me? And the more that we can get into that, the more what I say is we can actually turn into those difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. Because it's when we can turn into those conversations that we can actually really practice that active listening and actually hear from each other. And, you know, it's a lot of the work that I did in malpractice that kind of sort of set me up for that because the institutions that had the lowest incidence of malpractice were those that had exactly that kind of team dynamic. Mm-hmm. Like emergency yeah. rooms, for example, are really high risk areas for litigation, right? Because there's a lot happening and there's high stakes. Mm-hmm. But if in, in facilities where they could break down that chain of command, right? Where the doctor could say to the unit clerk, I want to hear from you. You think something's been misfiled? You tell me. Right. When, when they could sort of level out that organization and really create a culture that took input from everybody where the nurse would speak up, that much lower incidences of uh, errors and much lower incidences of medical malpractice claims. But when you had the traditional hierarchical, you know, people on the bottom of the ladder don't say anything because their voice is not heard and they're scared. And if they do speak up, they're going to lose their job. And the person at the top, the physician or the specialist reinforced that is typically where you would see much higher incidence of of litigation. So I've always remembered that Mm -hmm. as I've gotten into this other work. The more you can create that culture of safety, the better it is for everybody. But hey, listen, I'm going to be honest, talking in a group of lawyers, people don't want to talk about that. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Really? We make mistakes? No, no. I've never made a mistake. I've nope. never had to file a claim with it's, the law society. That, no, no, not me. Right? Like lawyers don't want to have those conversations. They're scared. They're really it's, that, scared. it's that imposter syndrome that Heather brought up. We, it's it's pretty well documented that everyone thinks they got into law school by fluke and that they're going to get found out found out any second. And then that just perpetuates when you get called to the bar. You're like, oh man, now I'm really in for it because when they really find out, I think that's why Suits was so good because it was actually an imposter, and he was better <laughs> at the job than we are. <laughs> but like um yeah that's it, it, and i think it goes to what we talked about at the very beginning of how there's this um expectation and lawyers aren't the only ones that suffer from that i think doctors it's a good example where they're 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 supposed to know everything right or they might mm-hmm. feel that way of course that's not true but they might feel like oh i'm the i'm the guy i've got to know everything and the person who finished a one-year program at a community college so he's doing some lowlier job at this hospital in this emergency room if he knows something that i don't know then i'm like what does that say about me of course that's totally the wrong way to think about it well absolutely and it's not to say that the physician or the lawyer or the engineer doesn't have a different job you absolutely do right? When you're the lawyer on the file, you're responsible. You're the insured party. You've got to know the limitation period. You have to know the law and it has to be right. Absolutely. You know, if if you're the neurosurgeon, your job is to do the surgery on the brain and you better get it right. Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I don't dispute that for a second. Mm -hmm. But 
if, you know, take the law example, if I've got a legal assistant or even a file clerk that sees the wrong date has been put on a file, I want to be in a place where that file clerk can come to me and say, hey, I don't know if this is important or not, but I think this is the wrong date. What do you think? That's where I want to practice. Um, and, and that's what I'm saying about, you know, the medical malpractice example. If the unit clerk sees that, you know, the doctor has written a script for a medicine and the nurse has interpreted it and there's a miscommunication, is that unit clerk going to speak up to somebody and say, is this really what you meant? Uh -huh. That's that's the kind of culture. But, you know, to your point, Heather, about, you know, anger, um, anger is a secondary emotion and it masks fear. And it's that imposter syndrome, like, oh, my goodness, if I make a mistake and somebody else knows about it, then they're going to think less of me. They're, I'm going to finally be found out. I wasn't actually meant to be in law. Oh my goodness, right? The stuff mm -hmm. that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But there's scads and scads of research now that's being done and coming out and showing that when we can talk about our mistakes is when we can actually advance the learning, the team, the knowledge in an area. Mm -hmm. It does require that we have these conversations, though. So, yeah, if it's not clear, I'm, I'm totally mm -hmm. into that. I love this area completely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I would be remiss if I'm if I didn't take the opportunity to mention that this, we've been discussing one of the seven habits that people that are highly effective use, and that's seek first to understand and then to be understood. And that that was kind of my introduction mm -hmm. to that concept of. Um, putting yourself aside so you can really hear the other person first. And Stephen R. Covey, who's the author of that book, talks about, he likens it to, um, you know, giving them air because when you can't breathe, the only thing that you can think about is getting that next breath. And so when somebody's upset about something because of some conflict or whatever, they can't move past anything until they have a chance to, to really feel like they've been heard. And so you've given that opportunity by like, just forgetting about your own agenda for a moment, just to make sure that you fully understand them and that they feel like they're fully understood. In my experience, that has really opened the way to finding a solution in a way, like in a powerful way. If somebody feels really understood, then they're a lot more opening open all of a sudden to, work together on the resolution. Have you found that? Oh, okay. So beautiful segue. Um, empathy, right? Empathy. Empathy is everything. Um, and in a traditional law practice, empathy is not really a consideration because when you're looking at pure legal rights, you're that neutral, objective person taking the evidence and me measuring it against a legal standard. When you start to move into this area of conflict resolution or uh, workplace restoration um, or even restorative justice, really empathy is everything. And it's that, it's that notion of being able to understand somebody without 
accepting what they're saying or agreeing with them, Mm -hmm. right? It's that distinction Mm -hmm. between sympathy and empathy. Mm -hmm. So I can understand that something is really important to somebody else. I can understand that is their perspective and that it has value to them for the reasons that matter to them. And I can still see it from a completely different perspective. And I think that that is a real skill that, I don't know, somewhere along the way, it's almost like it's gotten rusty or we've lost it. Um, You know, I I think of American politics, for example, right? And what happened down there over the last eight years. Like it was... Well, well, I don't. I don't think. I don't think most people have ever really polished that one. I think that's a tough thing to do. I mean, just look at history. Right. right? We, yeah. we, we love. It's always conflict. Whereas, you know, if uh, if Rome and Constantinople had practiced empathic listening, maybe they wouldn't have fought so much about stuff. <laughs> I'm hoping that perhaps this many years later, maybe maybe finally we're evolving to take Seneca in a new direction. Like, you call me the eternal optimist. I don't know. But I, I really do think that, like, we were talking before we came online about some different um, different supports or technologies and the role of artificial intelligence. Like, like things are really, really fundamental going in a some really exciting and challenging new directions for us uh-huh. but but I, I do think that empathy is really key and I actually I do believe that we have drifted away from that skill somewhat uh, over the last couple of decades like if I, I when I think back to um, some of the conversations that my parents used to have they disagreed with people all the time but they still talked to them. They still talked about the issues. Like it wasn't so siloed and so polarized. Whereas now, if I chose to, I could go weeks, months at a time without actually engaging with somebody that has a different perspective than me, Mm -hmm. right? Like if all I looked at was my social media feed or my YouTube or my Twitter or whatever, I wouldn't actually be faced with somebody's point of view that conflicts with mine. But I go out of my way to actually bring people into my world that have polar opposite views to mine. And and I really find that the key to being able to stay in discussion is this concept of empathy, being able to see what's important to them. And when you start to bring that into like a team dynamic, for example, in the workplace, you start to see a whole bunch of different perspectives come up. And if you can keep that going around, not only do the conflicts resolve and productivity goes up, but so does creativity. You know what the most powerful thing is about empathic listening, empathy in general? What you said is true. Like you can understand without changing your point of view or your perspective. But I think what often happens is when you open yourself up to really understand someone else, then that might actually change your perspective and you come closer together. And that will make it more likely that they understand your perspective. So I, I had a tiling business with my brother-in-law, who was also my best friend before he started hitting on my sister. And um, this used to happen to us all the time. We would, it wasn't a fight. We'd be like arguing about something. And then 
he would convince me, but I, at the same time, I convinced him. So then we would just switch sides of the argument. <laughs> I have it all the time, just about anything. We'd be like, oh, no, I think you're right. He'd be like, no, I think you're right. And then we'd be like arguing the other side. But um, I think, uh, I mean, that doesn't happen to me most of the time. But with him, we just, that's the way we, our conversation, our communication was pretty good, I guess. But um that can happen, right? Because if you fully, if you actually understand what they're saying, mm -hmm. then it, you have to kind of open your, widen your view. Yeah. And all of a sudden that can really help find a solution that you can live with. Well, and what often happens when you get to that place where you've got that empathic listening that's happening is new ideas start to come up. Right. Rather than like in the adversarial process where there's a position and there's a right and there's a wrong and there's kind of two trenches mm -hmm. that don't cross over. When you get into this interest based negotiation or mediation and I can, you, you can hear from somebody else about where their values land, where their interests are, suddenly you can start to have new options coming up, right? Instead of dividing the pie, you know, distributive bargaining, you're now making more pie. Well, you know, things start to present themselves as uh, ways of solving the problem that you hadn't even considered before, right? Like in the, the workplace context, maybe the concern is about, you know, deliverables and you're not meeting targets. And then when you get into the conversation and find out from the supervisor about, you know, what you actually want is to have more connection with the customers and the supervisor's metric is that's number of calls per hour. But, you know, maybe one outcome that I've seen is um, like a customer satisfaction survey. And so then the metric becomes how satisfied, like what are the results of that survey? And then the, the opportunity becomes for the, the person taking the calls to try to actually connect with the customer and hear them. Right. So customer satisfaction is actually up, which is the shared interest, but the uh -huh. way they get there is different than either side had considered going into the conflict. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Magic. It's all just magic. <laughs> If we could all just learn these skills, <laughs> yeah. our marriages and our family situations—like <laughs> the usefulness—is it's just massive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, and, and like that's why I love, uh, for example, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's like it's written in such a way that's easy to understand. Implementing it is a little harder. <laughs> right like it's there's some really tough things there to do and just like we're talking about here like that that can be really tough because whenever you're talking about a conflict there's emotion involved right mm -hmm. and um yeah that can make the, the, the number one thing that i have i've learned myself and that i've seen in other people it's that emotion piece and if you can find a way or learn if there's one skill to learn it's how to be triggered how to move through the trigger and get back into the conversation mm. that's that's probably the number one thing that i have seen over and over and over again that takes it takes humility which 
can be tough because, uh, and, and I had, a, I think about growing up because as I was telling Paul at the beginning, I came from, I come from a family of 12 kids and there was a lot of, um, gladiatorial style fighting with words. My family love reading and love words and really love pushing each other's buttons. And so there was, I really had a lot of opportunity to be upset and to be angry and to experience conflict at growing up in my family. I mean, all families are like that. I just had a lot of brothers and sisters. So it was a little more opportunities, I guess. <laughs> but um, it can be really hard, especially there where it's like somebody that you're really close to. It can, that can be really, really hard to be able to come back from that and just kind of, you know, control your emotions and get back into the conversation like you were saying. So that's a, that'd be a very important. If everyone, if everybody could do that, then uh, think about how much more we could accomplish. Wow. And I absolutely, um, and you know, your example, Evan, is great because, you know, and Kim, you said the same thing about families, about marriages. Um, there's lots of opportunity to practice these skills, right? Yeah. They, the opportunity to practice abounds. Um, and this kind of in, could tie into some of what we were talking about with Brené Brown and leadership um, and vulnerability. And the opposite side of vulnerability is shame. And shame and communication through shame, shame as a behavior modification technique, shame as a control method, is something that has been used for a long, long, long time. And, and I'm not suggesting, Evan, that that's what was going on in your family. I don't know. Um, but I, if, for, for example, in schools, right? The red light, green light, or red light, yellow light, green light for behavior um, is really based on shame. If your behavior falls below a certain level, you get the red light and your name goes on the red light until your behavior can improve. And then it goes back up to the green light. For some kids that works, mm -hmm. but most kids, if their behavior is in the red light, that's because something else is going on. There's some form of dysregulation. Um, there's, you know, maybe they're hungry. Maybe they haven't slept. Maybe there's conflict at home. Maybe there's an underlying um, disorder. There's a reason that that kid is in the red light. And so to just like to put their name up there and highlight that and to say, if only they tried harder, is to really shame them for something that's going on deep inside. Mm -hmm. Right? And so... That is still uh, research that's just evolving, even sort of in the last 15 to 20 years. So we're really starting to understand more about concepts like shame and the harm that they can do and move that, move the needle just the tiniest little bit, right? Through these conversations, through empathic listening. Um, that's one thing that I wanted to say. The other thing that I wanted to say, and I want to be clear about this, is boundaries. When I'm suggesting um, coming through that trigger and being able to get back into that conversation, the other side of that is to do it with boundaries. I'm not saying go back into that conversation so that person can jump all over you again, beat you all back up again, right? Right um boundaries right like you go back into that conversation 
but you are now self-aware, you're grounded, and you're able to say, yeah, now hold on a second and be assertive in that conversation and to hold your boundaries. And, you know, it takes a bit of practice, absolutely, to be able to do that, especially when you're escalated, especially when lots is going on. Um, and and that's, that is, I think, where having somebody who is trained as a lawyer, who's trained as a mediator, can bring that to these complex legal issues. Yeah, your description made me think of how I think sometimes... I don't know where it necessarily comes from, but sometimes we can feel like if we feel a certain emotion about something, whether it's injustice, like our sense of, of justice is, is violated or something like that, that can be especially difficult to reconcile because we, we just feel like, no, if I'm feeling that way, then that, you know, that has to be vindicated. I have to, I have to defend this to the bitter end. Whereas what I'm hearing you say is like, you may need to calm down, move past that get back in the conversation and be assertive, but moving past that emotional piece, because that's whether the emotion feeling that way is correct or not, is not really the point is, is trying to get to a resolution. Yeah. Depending on whatever that trigger is, um, it can be hard. Right. Um, if, you know, if you, one of your core values is justice and what you see happening in front of you is to your mind an injustice, there's that internal war inside yourself. Like, oh, how do I just set that aside and move on? This woman has got to be crazy. Like, forget it. Not going to happen. I'm not asking you or suggesting that you need to set aside that value. It's that anger arousal. It's, you know, it's that reptilian brain that you referred to, Heather. Like when, when you get into that where you've actually got, and, and there's a whole bunch of neuroscience and I'm kind of a bit of a science geek. Like I love all that stuff too. I won't get into a bunch of that right now, but all of those things that we talked about, you know, your face flushing, your hands getting sweaty, that swallowing reflex, all of that is happening at the level of the autonomic nervous system, mm -hmm. right? Like that's all your senses. That's all of that, that fight or flight going, whoa, 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 this is big. This is important. And your brain doesn't know the difference between an actual threat that is a grizzly bear on the trail and you need to run. Hence your, all that, you know, uh, dilation and your heart rate goes up and, you know, all the blood flow to your muscles. Your brain doesn't know the difference between the actual grizzly bear on the trail and the person in the boardroom that's pounding the table and leaning into you, mm -hmm. right? Your body has the same reaction. And so one of the very first things that I typically end up talking with people about is how to know that that's happening and to know that it's okay and then how to deal with it. And so then you can come back and talk about that injustice. You can, you can actually stay in that conversation long enough that you're able to express yourself about why justice is so important and still be able to find your words. 
right? Like when people get really worked up, usually, unless you're highly trained, often you'll lose your capacity to express yourself and, and access that language. So, um, you know, by being able to deal with that trigger, you get back into being able to talk about those things that matter to you so much. Yeah, I find this super interesting, obviously, because I keep on uh, contributing and asking questions and stuff. Heather, Heather and Kim, have you guys, you have any thoughts? I'm wondering when Evan's going to come to the dark side with us and do mediation and collaborative law. <laughs> yeah, I am. Look, I'm small C collaborative, Kim. I'm small C collaborative already. Uh, you know, probably at some point, probably at some point I will. You know what? Whatever, right? Like if I, you know, there are people out there that like to litigate. And I, and like I said, I litigate some cases. I'm in some arbitrations and boy, oh boy, like roll up your sleeves. Let's get it done. Like these are some issues that need to have some documentary evidence, yeah, examine your witness in chief and cross-examine, boy. Like we're going to test this. And then we're going to say to the arbitrator, tell us who's right and who's wrong here. Like I still do some of that work and there are some situations that call out for that. And I believe passionately in those situations. Well, yeah. Well, and it's not like I'm a litigator. I wouldn't describe myself as a litigator. I do, I do some litigation, but mo most of the time I'm doing small C collaborative or just negotiation and trying to do that. So I'm kind of there, Kim. Okay. Like, uh, I just wanted to give you a hard time because it's funny. <laughs> we need, we need people making changes from the inside too. Right. We need, <laughs> yeah, I'm the mole. we need the small C stuff happening as well. Right. And try yeah. and change hearts and minds sometimes. I mean, I'm not big C. I don't have big C collaborative for all of my files, but I actually philosophically don't, don't tell the other lawyers this, but I don't approach them all that differently, right? I'm still looking in that area for those solutions that are going to fit and are going to work, right? The other person doesn't even need to know that you're, you're doing interest-based negotiation, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in those I've, kinds of situations. <laughs> I've been, I've experienced before, Heather, when I, like going into a negotiation and when I was an articling student, my principal was like, talks about interest-based negotiation and the other lawyer immediately is like, I don't even right. know what that means. Right. It's like an experienced <laughs> lawyer. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is going to be great. <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, uh, I have a great closing thought, but I wanted to give Kim, you and Heather and Paulette a chance to provide a closing thought before I bring mine out. Yeah, I think just us getting the message out and, and Paulette being a big driver of it, of that there isn't just one way to practice law and people don't have to fear lawyers. They don't have to fear the process. They do have a say in how things can move forward. And uh, I like, I just appreciate these conversations so much because on the outside, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I have these preconceived ideas of what it would be like if I visited a lawyer and maybe I wouldn't reach out to one because I have fears about you know what I've seen in movies so I think just navigating this conversation today uh Paulette you've done like a really really important job so thank you well thanks Kim um I'm I'm really pleased that that's a takeaway that you have from this conversation 
because yeah, I've chatted with people that are nervous about reaching out to a lawyer or, you know, they assume that it's going to be a particular way or they, they don't ask questions. They don't challenge their lawyer. They say, Oh, the lawyer told me to do this. And so I just, I just did it. I didn't really think about it. And I think if people can be informed about the legal service that they're consuming, I think they're going to be better off. So that's great. I'm glad that's a takeaway that you've got. All right, Evan, let's hear those closing words. Uh, you're good. You're just passing. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking about what people see in the movies and think about lawyers in the movies, um, one of the tips that Paulette gave us, I thought was really a good tip, a great takeaway for anyone that's going to be involved in litigation process, including questioning or anything, which, and she said, she tells her clients when they're going into questioning that after the question's answered, take a deep breath mm -hmm. in, let it out, and then answer the question. If she had been able to tell Colonel Nathan R. Jessup that <laughs> advice, then when Lieutenant or Lieutenant Daniel Caffey said, was yelling at him, did you order the code red? He would have taken a deep breath and then answered what he was supposed to. But no, he said, you're damn right I did. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. How was that for a closer? And segue right from Kim's. Kim, that was a perfect setup with the movie reference. <laughs> well, Mr. Kelber, it's been, I can't even say a pleasure. Beyond a pleasure. What's better than a pleasure? It's been a slice. It's been just an honor to have you on and to have this chat today. Thank you for your wisdom and your contribution to the podcast and we can't wait to have you on again. I feel like we yeah. could talk for a week to you about all sorts of stuff. <laughs> we, could get, we could get all into like the employment side and things. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so thrilled uh, to have uh, received the invitation and uh, that you all were uh, flexible and willing to sort of get into some of these topics. Um, they're, you know, not everybody is, and, you know, it can be a little bit awkward and a bit stilted, and it's a little different than some of the conventional law stuff. Uh, so thank you for the forum and for asking the questions that you do and putting the information out there to people. I think that is just so key. Access to justice may mean, you know, just money financial wise, if people can afford lawyers, but I also think it's accessibility of information. And I'm so glad that you guys are doing this. And yeah, if you've got other things you want to chat about, either I can chat with you or see who we can connect you up with that I might know that, uh, you know, would be a good fit. So thank you. Sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> this has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thanks for listening or watching, however you found us today. If you have any questions you would like us to address on the podcast, please send an email to access to justice podcast at gmail.com. That's access number two justice podcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. Thank you. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. 
Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the Dales.